within Christian history and Christian belief, the reality is, is that the reason there's denominational perspective, the reason that there's different ways that we gather uh, and practices because some of these distinct views that have been held through Christian history. Last week, they opened that up with our view of God being gospel-centered. Everything we are as a church, everything we do, not just seeing people saved and come into faith, but just the, uh, even the ability to uh, live the Christian faith, live the Christian life, to, to have the hope that we have. It's all about our identity. It's all about our purpose, our mission, the rhythms of life. Everything is rooted in the gospel. We talk about it all the time. And that's what Dave kicked off for us. Well, this week in our series, we're, we're turning to our view of the gospel and salvation. Uh, and, and we're beginning, it's going to actually take us about seven weeks to get through this, because it's detailed and it's in-depth, and, and honestly, it's, it's worth our time. I mean, if we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we ought to be able to speak about how we define, how we look at how, the, uh, how, how God's grace is applied to us in the gospel. Like every other church, we believe and teach that salvation is by faith, or by grace through faith. Uh, that, that's every other Protestant church pretty much all teach that. But, but this has been a de- debated issue all the way through church history. We'll actually walk through some of that today as, as we dig into this. But we're just introducing it. We're, we're not trying to dig in today. We're just trying to introduce it today with, a, with a, just a focus on, a look at the doctrines of of grace. So we're going to start by reading our passage, Titus 3, and we're going to uh, pray, and then we'll dig into it, we'll walk through it, and just look at what the Word says. So would you read and follow along as, as I read these verses out loud? Titus 3, beginning in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, Hated by others and hating one another. That make you feel good about yourself? That's who we were. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of, our, of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you, I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray, Father. This is your word, your your revelation of yourself and your work in this world to save us. I pray today that uh, you would use it, that your spirit would would lead us into truth and help us understand that we'd be able to set aside personal perspective, personal preference. We wouldn't try to stand on our own in any way before you, but rest in your grace. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, just with a quick look over this passage, I mean, you can see a pattern emerge just pretty easily. In verse 3, Paul tells us who we were. I had to make a snarky comment about that, right? That's who we were. But, and he contrasts that, what we were, 
with something that we're becoming because of what God has done. So we have verse 3, kind of shows us who we were. Verse 4 through 7 show us uh, what God has done. And then the last half of verse 7 into verse 8 show us what we have become and what we've been benefited with because of what God has done. There's a, this is a common way that Paul presents the gospel message. It's a common way that he presents to us uh, our lives before us. And I would summarize it this way. I would summarize our view and, and the way we approach doctrines of grace and the way we teach. I would summarize it this way. We believe that God mercifully saves sinners by his grace and for his glory. We believe that God mercifully saves sinners by his grace and for his glory. Now, if you're sitting in here, no matter what persuasion you, you have or no, no matter how you approach salvation, that may not feel like a, a controversial statement. But I can tell you as we dig into what I'm saying over the next seven weeks, this week and the next six weeks actually, it's going to challenge some of us. It's going to, it's going to, you're going to see the distinction. We're going to wrestle with some of these perspectives. The debate, the, the struggle, the, the different perspectives didn't start in this room, though. This has been something being debated within Christian circles all the way back, maybe, maybe further, but at least back to Augustine and Pelagius all the way back in the early 400s. So just, you know, Jesus' first century and they're in the 400s. So, so just four, three or 400 years later, here they're wrestling with how is the gospel applied? How do we receive? How do we partake of the blessings of the gospel? Pelagius argued that, that mankind had a free will to obey God. His position was that there was no original sin. Like we were only sinners if we sinned. Adam's fall into sin had no effect on his descendants. There was no, no, no problem in our life that, that morally we were capable of following God, trusting God, being obedient to God, we didn't really need His grace. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, opposed to grace, but it wasn't necessary in His teaching. Salvation, in His view, salvation is merited by mankind and our works. Now, Augustine, who, who faced off against him, didn't deny that man had a, a will, like he made choices and had desires that he chose upon and, and was able to make these choices. But his position was that because our fallen nature is central to who we are, our fallen nature determines the will and the way we exercise it. And so our will, he stated, was not really free, but it was, it was bound up in, it was enslaved to our fallenness, our sinfulness, because we inherited a sinful nature from Adam. His view of salvation essentially was that salvation is accomplished by God alone with absolutely no help from us. God predestines us, God chooses us, God brings us unto himself, and then actually makes us able to respond to him in faith. Now, the church, now, it's, it's, this is a big, broad brush. Like, I'm, I'm summarizing this uh, in a, a very narrow way, but uh, just... You can go back and read all about it if you want. It's more detailed than that, but that's the summary. The, the church would eventually condemn Pelagius. They would come together and say, Hey, Pelagius, you're wrong. You're in error. The scriptures are, are against you. 
that you, you, you are outside of Christian doctrine. And just over 100 years later, so, so this was in 412, they condemned Pelagius. They sided with Augustine as he stood, and, and, and they debated this. They sided with Augustine. They said, Augustine's right, Pelagius is wrong. But just over 100 years later, in 529, semi-Pelagianism started to, to peek its head, and they had to deny and condemn that as a, as a doctrine as well. So let me just let me break those things out for you. So Pelagianism demonstrated that we didn't have a sin nature, we had a free will, we could merit salvation, we could live in such a way that God, we deserved it. We deserve salvation. Semi-Pelagianism, on the other hand, they didn't go quite so far. They didn't deny the need for grace. They, they recognized that grace was necessary for salvation, but it was only effective if we exercised our will and cooperated with God in receiving that grace. It, it required us to meet God. And so, so instead of salvation being merited by man and instead of salvation being uh, only from God and, and, and worked out completely by God, in their view, it's a, it's a cooperative work where God works and man works and because of that we're saved. Now, back in 529 A.D., that was condemned as heresy. The church recognized that that was outside of the biblical teaching. But even though both Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism were rejected and condemned as heresy, the perspective that man could in some way merit God's goodwill to him just continued on. In fact, nearly a thousand years later, when Martin Luther is knocking on, or, or hammering the 95 Thesis to the door, at the heart of his, cont- his contention with the Roman Catholic Church is that they were teaching that in some way man could buy his way or merit his way into God's good will and earn salvation, and he said no. In, in fact, at the center of his teaching, he wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And at the end of his life, he, he said, basically burn everything I've written but two books. And one of those books was The Bondage of the Will. In The Bondage of the Will, he goes back, traces all the way back, demonstrates through the Scripture, in agreement with Augustine, our will is not free. Do you make choices? Did you make a choice to get up and go to church? Yes, you, you, you got up this morning. You decided what color clothes to put on. You decided whether you're going to match your spouse or not match your spouse. You decided whether to eat Cheerios or cornflakes, whether to drink coffee with cream in it, or like most people, smart people do, just black, just regular old coffee. You decided that. You, you made all those choices. We have a will, he said. But it is bound. It is enslaved. It is conditioned by our will will always choose what our nature drives it to choose. As an example, if you throw a stake in front of a dog, what would you expect the dog to do? That's right. That's exactly, see, from the mouth of babes. That's a great illustration. They're going to eat it. Absolutely, they're going to eat it. Because their nature drives them to it. You, 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 don't, have to, you don't have to wonder. You, so, so that was his perspective. And, and he wrote this book. He says, he says at the end of his life, this is the centerpiece of the Reformation. Uh, the bondage of our will demands that God works sovereignly in salvation of his own power and by himself to save us. 
John Calvin followed Luther. John Calvin was uh, a second-generation reformer. Luther was kind of first-generation. And, and there's really traces of the Reformation happening even before Luther. But he was kind of that lightning rod, that spark. Um, and, and, and then John Calvin follows after Luther in the second generation of reformers. He would continue in this line. And he became very prominent in his perspectives. He's one of the most widely written people. He's probably written most. He's probably written more in his life than most of us will read in ours. Like he is. He he wrote a ton. He gained a lot of influence, uh, and his his perspectives and his views became very prominent, very very uh, influential in the world at that time, in the Christian world at that time. And he became a proponent of August Augustine's view all the way back from the 400s. He took up, that, took up that same perspective that God saves people without any help from us. In fact, he quoted just, I don't know, it's a piece of trivia I learned this week as I was reading and studying. He quoted from Augustine more than anyone else he quoted from. Augustine clearly had an influence on John Calvin, uh, and, and he quoted from him more than anyone else he quoted from. But essentially, Calvin taught, that salvation is the work of God in which God elects and predestines. He does the choosing. He does the work. He affects us before we have an opportunity or even, let's say it, let me say it a different way, not just an opportunity. He affects us. He works on us before we even have a capability or a desire to respond to him. And that was Calvin. And then you'd think, okay, well, Calvin, I mean, they, they had a massive influence. There was a massive influence across Europe. It, it, it sparked the Reformation. This is the Reformation from the Roman Catholic Church. They're returning to their gospel. They're reforming the church back to the gospel doctrines. Massive influence. And the debate didn't stop. In fact, in the third generation of reformers, this guy named Jacob Ar- Jacobus Arminius comes up. He was trained under Calvin's successor. The guy's name was Theodore Beza, I think, is Theodore seems right. Theodore Beza. He's trained as a Calvinist, is a Calvinist, and then goes to defend his perspective. And as he does that and begins to study to defend his perspective, he changes his mind. And he adopts a perspective of free will and that we have some responsibility, not just some responsibility, we are able, morally able, to respond to God without him first saving us or regenerating us or doing something in us. Now, here's what he did. So he begins to write down and, and systematize his views, if you will, and it got him in a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. In fact, he was accused of Pelagianism. His views were so close to what was originally considered heresy that the Reformed Church began to accuse him of heresy and, and the accusations that he had abandoned the faith followed him all the way to the, to the day of his death in 1602. So, so that's where his views stood, at least in perspective of the Reformed Church. That's why some people today say that when he started to teach what he taught, he was actually returning to Roman Catholic theology. And that he had left the Reformation. That's why they were saying what he was saying. Is that he was actually giving up the Reformed faith altogether. And he was returning to Roman Catholicism. Not everybody agrees with that. But that's what, that's what some would suggest. Anyway, so he dies, 1602. 
And this debate continues on. His influence didn't end. His followers get together, and they're devout. I mean, they're, they're loving the things that he's teaching. They get together. So, so what ends up happening is these two camps end up forming inside of Christianity. I think on the screen behind me should be, yes, a picture of John Calvin versus Arminius. Here's the interesting thing. John Calvin died when Arminius would have been about four years old. They likely never even saw one another. But their followers are serious about their views. And so now we have Calvinism that follows after what Calvin developed and, and taught. And we have Arminianism, which developed and formed out of what Arminius taught. His followers began to take his views, systemize them even further in 1610... They got together and they wrote a document and agreed to a document called the Remonstrance of 1610. Very creative name. The Remonstrance of 1610. Basically, it's the, it's the opposition or the, or the uh, disagreement uh, with what's going on of 1610. They became known as the Remonstrance. So that's what they, they, that was their name before they were Arminians. But what they got together was they got together, they, they came up with five doctrines that they said, this is what the Bible teaches about the gospel and how it comes to man. They emphasized the free will of man. They emphasized the universal atonement that Jesus died for everyone in the world. They emphasized that, that man can choose to be saved and choose to not be saved. Again, painting with a, a very broad brush. It's more detailed than that, but just, just for the sake of time. Essentially, those are some of the perspectives. Five points they came up with. Those five points were in, in, in direct disagreement with what had been being taught in the church since the Reformation. And so, eight years after that happened, the Reformed churches from several different countries in Europe got together in a city called Dortrecht. We would say Dort because we're English but it was Dortrecht. It's in the Netherlands. They had 154 meetings over about six months. And when they finished their biblical and doctrinal objections, they wrote five points to face off or to, to demonstrate what they said was error in Arminius' teaching. And they called them the canons of Dort. So we have the Remonstrant or Remonstrants of 1610. We have the canons of Dort or the doctrines of grace that was developed by the Reformed Church. And here's the thing. Fast forward 400 years later, and you don't know it, but you're on one side of that debate. Believe it or not, every one of us sitting in this room sits on one side or another of that debate. And unfortunately, that debate has caused all kinds of tension in the church. In fact, we divide denominationally over things like that. Here's why, here, here's why I'm bringing up the debate and the the, the to struggle even today with it. The reality is, we would, t- we would teach this is a, an important view, but it's non-essential. And rather than being at one another's throat, let's unite in Christ, His death, His resurrection, and let's discuss this stuff because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of what side we sit on. We don't follow Calvin, and we don't follow Arminius. We follow Jesus. Okay, but over the next seven weeks, I'm going to demonstrate to you (laughs) that we have a perspective, and we teach from that perspective, but we don't ask anyone to agree with it. 
right? We're not forcing, I'm not, we teach at this church, we teach from a Calvinistic perspective. But I am not seeking, Dave is not seeking, none of our pastors will ever seek to make you a Calvinist. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to love Jesus. We want you to grow up in Jesus. And we think eventually you'll become Calvinist. As you, no, I'm just kidding. That, that, that really was a joke. But the, the reality is, here's, here's, here's the thing. We're serious. We, we believe because we believe so much in the gospel. And we believe so much that it is everything about who we are. We recognize that we have to be serious about how we approach it. And we believe this is the most biblical model, that God saves sinners, period. We have no ability, apart from His saving work, to save us. We believe that God mercifully saves sinners by His grace and for His glory, just like Paul tells us here in Titus, just like Paul tells us over and over through his letters to the New Testament church, and just like Jesus said... All across his teaching. In fact, most of what we'll learn or look at over the next seven weeks will be from the book. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of verses. But the foundation will be Jesus' words himself in the book of John, demonstrating the sovereignty of God in salvation. We believe God mercifully saves sinners by his grace and for his glory. At the end of this, my hope and prayer is not that we're all Calvinists. I would be, we are not going to end this debate here. It's not going to end right here. My hope and prayer is you will know better what you believe and why you believe it. And if you have been challenged and you have wrestled through these things and you have, been, and you have had to run to the scripture to say, is this what I believe or is this what I believe or what do I believe? Or, I want to wrestle with this. I need to know this. I want to find security. I want to find assurance in it. Then you know what? You are better off for it. This will not be time wasted. But I also want you to know where we come from, where we teach from, the perspectives that we teach from, even if you don't hold them with us. Because our unity is not in Calvinism and Arminianism. It is in Christ. All right. So let's work through this. Let's look at the passage uh, a little closer, get out of the history and, and, and dig a little more on this passage. We believe that God mercifully saves sinners by His grace for His glory God saves sinners without the cooperation of the saved sinner. Look at verse 5. What does it start with? He saved us. He saved us. Not, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because we did something to earn it. Not because we did something to cooperate in it. He saved us. This is it. There's no cooperation on our part at all. Now, I'm going to deal with this more in the weeks ahead, but this is at the very beginning of what Calvin taught, what Augustinian views are. This is it. God saves sinners. There is people who are being acted upon in this passage, and there are people who are, 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 are uh, well, people just for the sake of it, people who are acting in this passage. The saved, those sinners who are saved, are being acted upon. The ones doing the saving work? God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. God the Father saves us by the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. God sends His Son. God decrees salvation. God determines salvation. The Holy Spirit regenerates hearts, renews people. 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the one who gave his life, who died in our place and for our sin. And rose from the grave, giving us the hope of eternal life. That we don't fear death. We don't look at a grave and see an end. We see the very beginning. Brothers and sisters, this is the center of our perspective. We can be acted on, but we have no power, no ability to cooperate with God in salvation. There's no indication of that. All of the scriptures recognize God's grace in salvation, his sovereign role in salvation. All of the scriptures recognize that God does this by himself. He is alone. The three people, the three eternal persons of God, the one God is alone in our salvation. David, writing from, of God's faithfulness to his people, writes in Psalm 37, 9, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. We're, the, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. It comes from Him. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Again, David, in another psalm, writes of God's central and solo role in salvation. Psalm 62, 1 through 2. And you can actually see this again in that psalm if you go and read all of it. Psalm 61, or 62, 1 through 2. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. It's always interesting to me that as David has received such blessing from God, he never stands up and assumes that he did something to deserve it or something to make his way to God in order that he could receive it. God is always, in his mind, the one, only one worthy of praise. After being thrown into the middle of a storm, sinking to the bottom of a sea, completely helpless, Jonah was then swallowed by a great fish. And as he is in the fish's belly, he praises God in Jonah 2.9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not once does Jonah think, oh, man, God, you finally realized I deserve this. Not, not, he, he didn't say, God, I, I'm glad I found this fish that you could let me get into. His payment is going to be in response to what God has done in saving him. The picture is Jonah at the bottom of a sea, absolutely helpless, absolutely incapable, absolutely unable to do anything about it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. John, in the apocalypse, all the way at the other end of the book, he sees this amazing vision, all kinds of amazing things he sees. But in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, he writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, I'm glad I believed in God. No. In fact, they take no credit for it at all. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 19.1 After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And it's striking to me 
Now, I'm, I, I might be pushing this too far. I, I, I might be pressing on this just a little bit. But it's striking to me that in, in eternity, we're not going to be arguing about Calvinism and Arminianism. We are going to be praising God for saving us. I think we'll all be Calvinists at that point, but... <laughs> Sorry. I could, I just... Take your thoughts captive. Sorry. We're going to be praising God. And affirming that he saved us. That God saves sinners. Without any cooperation from us. Without any reason to turn around and say, I'm glad you figured it out. Hey, look at you. You, you figured it out. You learned to believe. No, God saved us. That's who we're going to praise for this. God saves sinners without the cooperation of the saved sinner. God saves sinners because of his nature and not the sinner's nature. Look at verses 4 through 7. Uh, just real quickly, just to see this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. By, uh, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that, so that being justified by his grace... Paul makes clear that there is no condition put on us. Salvation is conditional upon the nature of who God is. God is the merciful one. God is the the, the gracious one. God is the loving, kind one. God is the good one. These attributes that he lays out, they're what salvation is conditioned upon. They're what are the motive and the source of our salvation. God's goodness, his moral excellence, his righteousness, his uprightness, his loving kindness, his love for mankind, sinners, rebels, his love for us, his mercy, compassion, his pity, his concern for our well-being, his grace, his unmerited undeserved, we we can't pay him back, we can't deserve it, we can't in any way demand it of him. And because we don't deserve it, God is unobligated to give it. He didn't have to save anyone. It's his grace that moves him to salvation. It's his mercy that moves him to salvation. It's his loving kindness that moves him to salvation. It's his goodness that moves him to salvation. Not anything on us. In fact, let's just contrast that with what Paul said about us before we were saved. In verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish. Ignorant is what that means. Uneducated, unknowing, without all the information. We didn't have real wisdom. Everything that functioned in our heads was actually foolishness. Disobedient, he says. Look, look, we were foolish. We were disobedient. What, what does that mean? We were rebellious. We, we, didn't, we didn't follow him. We didn't obey him. We went the other way from him. We were led astray. What that means is we were deceived. We were rejecting truth and believing lies. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now, we don't like to consider ourselves in this place. We don't like to think of ourselves being enslaved to anything because we're, we're red-blooded Americans. We're free. Our Constitution 
secures our freedom, right? No. Outside of Christ, you are enslaved to the passions and pleasures that your flesh desires. The old man, the dead man, the one who was rebellious and foolish and disobedient to God, he was leading you away from him. We were ruled by our desires and our pleasures. We were slaves to it. We had no ability to do anything but what they wanted us to do. It's verses like this that led Augustine and Luther and Calvin to say, we don't really have a free will. Our will is enslaved to our pleasures and our passions. Passing our days, he says, passing our days, so we're just passing the time, in malice and envy. This is the mark of humanity. He's, he's dealing with our motives, malice and envy. And you can say, I don't feel malice towards people. I don't, I don't have envy towards people. But you realize we can't get away from this in our world. It just will not work. Every winner is contrasted with a loser. If someone is going to win, someone must lose. That's the way this world works. Sometimes that's as violent as Nancy Kerrigan getting her knee taken out by her opponent. And we know that, I can't remember the lady's name now, Tanya Harding. She says she didn't do it. She says her, I think it was her ex-husband maybe, did it? I don't, we, don't, we don't know, but she got her knee taken out. Sometimes it's that malicious, that, that, that active pursuit of making sure that someone is harmed or can't experience good. Sometimes it's, it's not quite so bold. Sometimes it's just a little bit of envy, like these people standing on the stage in America's Got Talent, waiting, you know, the, the three names, they get called forward and they're standing there waiting. And, the, and, the, and, the, and they're trying to build a lot of suspense and drama and they're waiting, their eyes are closed, and they're nervous. And they're, you, you know they're not standing up there thinking, I hope I hear their name. Right? No, because they're envious for the good thing themselves. Every winner demands there be a loser. That's the way this world works. And so maybe we're not all running out, taking out people's knees. But malice isn't always just active violence. It's, it's hoping something bad happens so that something good can so, something bad happens to someone else, so something good can happen to you. It, it, it's it's desiring the good that others have, even if it means they can't have it. That's the mark of human nature. And then he drives it just a little bit further. Hated, and hating. There's a reality that in this world, there is no true selflessness. Apart from Christ, we cannot be anything but selfish. That's what he's saying. No real relationship exists. No true depth of relationship. No true fellowship exists because we are always at odds with one another. Because we are like two suns in the same solar system. We all have our own gravitational pull. And I expect everything to come to me. And you expect everything to go to you. But... Please, please hear me say this. But we were saved from that. He saved us. Now, I know it's not fun to think of ourselves this way. We don't like to think of ourselves. We, we like to think of ourselves as naturally good, but the Bible leaves no room for that. That's why Pelagian was seen to be a heretic. That's why semi-Pelagianism was demonstrated early on in the 529 AD to, to be outside of Christian orthodoxy because they're apart from Christ, apart from the work of God, doing his 
saving, applying his saving grace, there is no good in man. We're going to deal with that more next week. Hope you look forward to that. God saves sinners because of his nature, not the sinner's nature. And he saves those sinners without the cooperation of the saved sinner because our nature has nothing to offer in salvation. Everything we are apart from Christ deserves condemnation. Finally, God's salvation of sinners blesses the sinner, but it glorifies God. It blesses the sinner, but it glorifies God. Lots of good comes to us. We, we are changed radically. You can see that in, in contrast from verse 3 all the way down to verse, in, in, in verse 7 into 8. There's a radical difference in the language that Paul uses about people. We're justified by grace. We're counted righteous by grace, where before we had no righteous works to offer. Now we're counted righteous by God's grace. We have an inheritance, he tells us in verse 7. He says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. That's inheritance, so that we might be able to inherit from God according according to the hope of eternal life. That inheritance is in accordance with having the confidence that God one day, when we die, we will live with him forever and ever. This is a radically different perspective being presented about people. This is because of salvation. Verse 8, rather than malice and envy, hated and being hating, he actually says, hey, insist on these good works. These, these things are profitable. They're good for one another. They're excellent. They're profitable for, pe- for people. We can actually be good for one another. Let me just remind you of our, our sermons uh, all the way back when we did uh, the sermon on spiritual gifts inside the teaching on the church. I, I demonstrated to you that we're each given God's grace to be stewards of. And that grace, and this is 1 Peter chapter 4, he tells us that we're to be stewards of this grace so that others can experience God's grace. We should not be surprised to see malice, envy, hate, and all that in the world. But in the church, as stewards of God's grace, among his people, we have been changed and are able now because of what he has done to actually benefit and bless one another. We're, we're beneficiaries of this work. We, we have been blessed by it. We don't deserve it. Ne- never did and never could. He saved us. But man, has He blessed us. Man, have we been given hope. My goodness, do we have something better to look forward to because of what He has done. Did, did, did I respond or... Did did not every Christian respond to him in faith? Didn't we do something? Yeah, absolutely we did. But what drove us to the place that we wanted to believe? What in us ever began to turn to him at all? If our nature is what the Bible describes it to be apart from him, whatever made us want him? He did. God saves sinners without the cooperation of the sinner at all. If you're sitting in this room and you're trusting in Christ and looking forward to eternal life and loving on brothers and sisters in Christ and enjoying the blessing that comes from them and blessing them, it is not because you did something praiseworthy. Salvation belongs to to the Lord. 
We praise Him for that. We look to Him for that. We honor Him for that. That's the beginning. And in some ways, I recognize that not everybody feels comfortable with this. We've talked about the debate. We've looked at the debate. But rather than clinging to personal perspectives, rather than clinging to what feels good and fair to you, let me encourage you to go home and you search the Scriptures and you seek out what is true. I wrestled with this myself early on. I... um, I always had a Calvinistic... I, I didn't come up under this teaching. Like, I didn't, I didn't come up with someone pouring Calvinistic doctrine into me. Um, in fact, I was under Arminian teaching before uh, we planted the church. But when the Lord really... When He did this work in my life, part of my, part of my story is that it was... It was me recognizing my... What, what I'm not, what, what I'm doing is not working. Why in the world would I continue to do the things I'm doing? And I listened to all the people that had been putting in my path. Get in the word. Get in the word. Get in the word. Get in the word. For years I was hearing that. And so one one day at work I decided I don't know what else to do, but listen to this advice. Get in the word. So I sat down and I began to read through the Bible. I've told you guys, most, most of you have heard this before. I started reading in Matthew. And I didn't know what to do, so I started reading in Matthew. I read the Revelation. I got to the end of Revelation. I, what do I do now? I was, okay, I'll start reading in Matthew. So I started reading in Matthew, and I read the Revelation. And, and that led to me reading the Bible through every year for a number of years. And I, I didn't come up with someone telling me, you need to see God as sovereign in salvation. I couldn't help but see it. But anytime ta- someone talked about Calvinism, I just, I don't know where I learned it. I don't know why I thought this way, but my, the, I, I just rejected it. I, I just would flat out get frustrated and angry, and I just flat out rejected it. But the more I read, and the more I studied the Bible, I couldn't get away from this. Our sovereign God saves sinful people. And instead of trying to stand up and say, well, I don't think that's fair. Instead of trying to stand up and say, God, you can't do it that way. Instead of trying to resist against a a term Calvinism, I decided years ago, I'm going to submit to the teaching of the Bible. That's why we teach the way we teach from the perspective we teach from here. Not so that people will become Calvinists, but because only God deserves the glory for saving sinners. Let's pray.